Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And welcome back. Welcome in. You've made it to another edition of Let's Hear It. We're so glad to have you. So glad you found us. And Mr. Brown, I'm so glad to be sharing this time with you today. How are you? I'm uh, I'm doing I'm doing as well as I deserve or better than I deserve, I guess is the way to put it. Well, this is the requisite response these days, isn't it? You said uh, in, during this interview, which I cannot wait to get to, it's outstanding once again, that um, hanging in there is about the cursory response. That's about the best we can we can we can say these days. Yeah, I guess if you're hanging in there, you're doing OK. Oh, by the way, I meant to um, I meant to say that there's somebody else. Apparently, podcasting is a thing. Did you know that? I, I, I don't know. I don't keep up with the times that well, but maybe it's possible. Who knows? Be- because a very famous person started a podcast recently named of Michelle Obama mm. and her first guest, someone we clearly love to have on the show, Barack Obama. Yes. <laughs> it was great. I just want to put in a plug for Michelle Obama because she needs more people following her. That's right. Go check She's out. Not Mich- popular enough. Check out Michelle Obama, and if you want to Google her online, you'll 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 get some retelling of her many accomplishments there. If you're That's not familiar right. with them, Google Michelle Obama. So. Apparently, it's only on Spotify, so you got to be a Spotify person. But anyway, uh, okay. I just want to say that podcasts apparently are catching on. Well, let's. Let's jump to ours because I think everybody needs to be ready for a jolt of much needed hope as a result of this conversation, which again, Eric, I thought was fantastic. Tell us who we're about to listen to. I spoke with Javier Torres Campos, who is the director of the Thriving Cultures Program at the Cerdna Foundation. And for one thing, I really like the Cerdna Foundation. It is a family foundation that has, uh, I think, exemplified what a great family foundation can be. It's the Andres family. Mm -hmm. And Andres backwards is Cerdna, and that's how they pick their name. And uh, the conversation with Javier, I think, kind of gives you a sense of what that foundation is and does and how it how it thinks about justice. And the conversation is about, and it's a pretty wide, wide, wide ranging conversation. I was most interested in speaking with Javier because of the work that he does as an arts funder. Uh, but our conversation obviously uh, expanded beyond that as it tends to do. Yes, this is an amazing and inspiring conversation. Let's listen to Javier Torres Campos on Let's Hear It and we'll come back after. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest today is Javier Torres Campos, the program director of the Thriving Cultures Program at the Cerdna Foundation. Javier, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Hear It. Absolutely. Good morning, Eric. How are you? I'm I'm hanging in there, which is the I think the standard response. Yes. <laughs> How about you? Yeah, same. Trying to find gratitude and joy and the little moments uh, each day. So I hear you. Well, I have a lot of gratitude for you taking the time to talk to us. Same. Uh, Thank you. So I've said this uh, a lot of times on this show. Nobody grows up wanting to work for a foundation. 
Nobody crawls into bed with mommy and daddy and says, Mommy, daddy, I want to be a program officer at a foundation. That's right. How did you, <laughs> how did you get involved in this work? Um, I think like most of us, by happenstance, my background is in business and management. My first career in the late 90s and early 2000s was in managing nightclubs between Philadelphia and New York City. And uh, when I moved home to Massachusetts in late 2002, actually 2003, I ended up through my mother actually meeting the executive director of an affordable housing community in the center of Boston called Villa Victoria. I fell in love with that CEO's vision for that organization, and they had an amazing multidisciplinary art center that had a really great curatorial staff, amazing production staff, but they needed somebody to help them figure out a business model so that they weren't continuing to lose money and could maintain with the sort of ongoing capital needs of the facility. I was there as their director for six years. It was really an amazing experience, but because Boston is such a small town, I got to be recognized as an arts and culture guy, even though that's not my background. And why that work was so rewarding to me is as a Puerto Rican that was raised in a sort of suburban, almost rural, central Massachusetts town, my culture and my parents inviting all their artistic friends on the weekends was really one of the things that I looked most forward to. It was a grounding for me. And so I was fortunate enough that I had built a relationship with the gentleman that was the vice president of programs at the Boston Foundation at the moment, Robert Lewis Jr., who grew up in Villa Victoria and still had active relationships would bring donors through so they could understand what growing up in that community and what that experience would be like. At the time, the person that was the senior program officer for arts and culture for the foundation after 13 years had departed, and he was looking for somebody new that could help him shake things up and really focus on some new opportunities. And I applied, and the rest was history. I was there for three years, did some fundraising because it was a small budget I was overseeing for about uh, of about $2.5 million a year. And through that fundraising and some of the relationships because of the president and the board, I actually ended up getting my second job almost four years later as the director of national grant making for Art Place America. I think that people are making this connection between arts and culture and social justice in a way that more now than ever. Yeah. I mean, it's always been the arts have been always this important component of social justice. But I know that you have been looking at that lately, is this a, is a, a movement kicking in in a way that we haven't seen before? I think that it's been there. And, you know, recently I wrote a memo for our board sort of talking about what in the narrative or culture change space we articulate uh, or call portal moments. They are like the right ingredients almost from a chemistry class that come together to get that volcano model to erupt. And so we understand them scientifically and societally, I think we're not as good at recognizing the precursors of what amplifies a particular message. And so I definitely think that this is something that has been considered, thought about. This intersection has existed for decades and generations, and there are lots of folks whose shoulders I think I stand on and many others do. But there definitely is a moment now where people are paying attention. Some of this has been driven by organizations like Art Place America that I used to work for that have been working for 10 years to integrate arts and culture into community development and thinking about the social change that's possible there. Others have been talking about disinvestment and capitalization, where grantmakers in the arts has sort of picked up the, the mantle of really understanding how to integrate social and racial justice values in arts and culture grantmaking. So I do think it's something that has, has existed for some time, but definitely is having a catalytic expansion of recognition of 
how social justice rights and values uh, really do intersect with culture in our society. And we're starting, starting to see arts funders, particularly some of the big foundations, really take this on. Uh, I know the Hewlett Foundation strategy has has adapted. A lot of foundations are saying, okay, if we're going to spend money on the arts, let's make sure that that we are building communities who haven't had the opportunity. That, quite frankly, the opera and the symphony are fabulous, but there are more things that we can achieve through our arts spending. Uh, you're a board member of the Grantmaker of Grantmakers in the Arts, right? I was for six years, and my term ended oh, okay. um, at the end of 2019. Okay, so can you just talk about some of those conversations? Needless to say that those conversations are happening at on a variety of levels, and I assume that Grantmakers for the Arts are, are having them as well. Absolutely. So historically, this work, um, you know, one of the mothers of this movement within Grantmakers in the Arts that's credited um, is Claudine Brown, who was the director of Arts and Culture Programming and Nathan Cummings Foundation for a number of years, who began to sort of bring people together um, to talk about this intersection of arts and culture and social justice. That work led to a number of other really key leaders, including Laurie Pourier from you know, Indigenous Rights Movements at the First Peoples Fund, Justin Lang during his tenure at the Heinz Endowments, um, Maureen uh, Knighton, who uh, is now at Doris Duke and replaced Claudine when she departed from Nathan Cummings, we're all on the board, sort of uh, really talking deeply with Grandmakers in the Arts' previous executive director, Janet Brown, uh, who's now based in South Dakota and working as an arts and culture consultant, really amazing woman. And it was a 10-year journey. These individuals were able to have thoughtful conversations that opened the doors for an expansion of a group. And I'll never forget, it was about 10 years ago now, or maybe a little bit longer, when the first sort of thought leader group was brought together in Pittsburgh, co-hosted by Grantmakers in the Arts and by the Heinz Endowments, for a two and a half day um, anti-racism training led by the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. And that led to an ongoing series of conversations and thought pieces and trainings for the board and for the staff to think comprehensively about what were the steps that GIA needed to take to sort of evaluate the root causes of its own choices through its programs, its policies, its procedures, and its governance and staffing structure, and ultimately landed as one of the core pillars of the work that the institution wanted to do, both as an opportunity to provide thought leadership for the field and push it towards the future, and also to be responsive to the changing demographics and conversations that were happening in foundations across the country. And now I think GIA plays a really central role of that work, especially as they work across affinity groups and thinking really critically as to how they collaborate with other justice funders who are working on climate issues or on economic justice issues or on ethnic specific like Hispanics and Philanthropy or APFI, which is the Association of Black Financial Executives. And it's been really great to sort of see that development over the last 10 years, understanding that you can't turn ships on a dime and that these are small little conversations for incremental change. Yeah, I, I I worked at the Hewlett Foundation for a long time, so I'm just familiar with their arts funding. But for the longest time, there were these conversations. You almost see people in the hallway and you go, uh, we're working on climate change and you're just doing the arts. Yep. And don't you feel guilty? Yeah. And I, I think that people are starting to understand that, you no, know, it's not that's sorry, that's not how it works, that, <laughs> that the arts are part of our culture and culture is the thing that drives 
how we think, what we do, what we decide, what choices we make, what kind of governments we want. And so that's happening, although it hasn't, I don't think, been as articulated as well as it ha as it could have been. You you did a wrote a piece for Stanford Social Innovation Review that didn't look at the arts per se, but it looked at design and city planning and these various creative processes that how how they can be used in the the, the new beginning yeah. of of our society. Can you just talk a little bit about how those how, how you came to write that piece? how those pieces fit together. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, yeah. We, so we've been talking a lot about what's next. Yeah. Like we, you know, I'm tired of talking about the crap we're in, yep. in that way. Yeah. What, uh, uh, what we really like talking about is how do we take advantage of this moment to build a better future? Um, I'll start with historically, you know, it's one of the things that's the most gratifying about my role at the Certain Foundation is that even prior to my arrival, um, thanks to Ellen Rudolph and to Judy Lee Reed, who were my predecessors in my role, um, Ellen Rudolph is now uh, retired, but still a very active participant in the arts community and has been a, a good mentor to me. And Judy Lee is the same now with the William Penn Foundation. They went through a process with third and fourth generation of the family at Serdna to, to take what was sort of a traditional view of arts and culture um, and how it existed in galleries, museums, and organizations, and started to open the aperture a little for the board to really think about the way that design thinking, designers, architects, and urban planners are parts are an essential part of the arts and culture ecosystem within which we operate. Under Judy Lee's leadership, one of the program officers that worked for certain at the time, Jess Gars, who's now an independent consultant in Philadelphia, really led a charge to build the field of community-engaged design with many, many others that had been working across the country, to build curriculum that understood how you brought a social justice analysis to the world of urban planning, and how we could connect architects and designers more closely to what we consider traditional capital A artists. Upon my arrival, the, it was clear to me that the foundation and the family were prepared to sort of expand their view a little bit more. And uh, through lots of rich conversations, what we came to realize and what the board really centered in our refined strategy is that arts and culture is not just about a painting in a museum or a dance or performance piece in a theater. It's not even about the sculptures that we see as part of public art or murals. It really is in the everyday ways in which we greet each other, how we dress for particular conversations, and that culture ultimately is manifest in our policies and the both firm and real structures of our society and the intangible sort of social norms. And that popped open a whole world of how we could engage artists in these conversations and really capitalize on their capacity to see what's possible in the world and to begin to prototype on not just how, as you would say, like as you were referencing, I think, if I'm understanding you correctly, let's just not critique what's here. But if we're going to say that the thing that we're doing isn't working, how do we then pivot and say, and here are the multiple ways that we can think about replacing it? It's a really exciting opportunity from our perspective and is the reason why in the fall of last year, after a year of planning with the new strategy, the board approved almost $14 million for my program over three years to go through intermediaries directly into the hands of artists to work with their communities to prototype new systems and structures. So 
if we have a problem with the education system, then let's take 30 or 60 days and work with the community to figure out what should a classroom look like. I point a lot to some partners in our portfolio, the Design Studio for Social Intervention, that have even considered uh, new ways of talking about this work that can help us think about what's possible. They say, you know, many of us in social justice movements are taught about rigid systems and structures, but those can feel really daunting. So how about we just talk about arrangements? When you walk into, for example, a traditional classroom, all the chairs are lined up in rows and they face the front of the room. And that structure causes an effect. It leads people to implicitly assume that knowledge is centered at the front of the classroom and that it comes directionally towards us as the learners. In other cultures and in other artistic ways of living, the standard is not the square, it's the circle. Uh, understanding that knowledge comes from all places. So even those social arrangements that are really subtle, that are sort of little pieces of systems and structures, are ways in which we can begin to imagine a new way of being that can really embed social justice values in our work. Um, and we saw as a foundation that there was a gap in the resourcing of individual artists to really be able to step into this powerful role, whether it was within city government, within private industry, or within public space. The other group that we work with a lot is a collective that is uh, part of the Movement Strategy Center called Intelligent Mischief. And what I've appreciated about their analysis is you know, as we begin to imagine, there's been this call for like defunding the police in the current social justice moment. And that's really scary to folks, which is why sort of, you know, one of the reasons why Deanna Van Buren and I decided to write this piece is to say, part of the reason it's scary is because we can't understand what we would do in place of if I had an accident, if somebody broke in my home, if I was assaulted. Well, first, we kind of have to ground ourselves in the reality that data tells us that 85 to 90 percent of the activity that police are responding to are nonviolent. And so there's a way to sort of develop a system of social workers, of case managers, of other folks that are community leaders that understand how to de-escalate conflict in a society and then create or offer referrals and connections for folks to get the support that they need. And so in many ways, this article was about really lifting up how critical the imagination is in this moment and how contested it can be, given those that are in power, and the role that artists fundamentally can play in society, in our public life, in our private life, and in private industry, to help us really begin to think about how we reorder things. The last note I'll say on this particular question is I think a lot about the complex formula that the government has to get us to a price of milk. These are choices <laughs> that people make about how we subsidize farmers and how we subsidize the costs of uh, making milk safe for us to drink, packaging it, and then getting it across the country. These are arbitrary choices that people in power make that are based on values and cultural norms or assumptions about what's important and for who. And so the more we recognize that these are the ways that we're making decisions, the more, I think, surgical or precise and strategic we can be about how we resource the arts and culture community to help all of us, just like with the Board of Serdna, open our eyes to the ways in which culture is influencing our decisions and artists should be involved in many of our decisions that we normally take for granted. Well, I, I mean, I just think this is, this is such exciting thinking. And we're going to take a, a short break and be back with Javier Torres Campos in just a minute. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. 
Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. And we are back with Javier Torres Campos, who's the program director of the Thriving Cultures Program at the Cerdna Foundation. And I, I just love how you are describing what I'm considering the opening of the American mind, particularly as as it pertains to the arts. As my background, as I was a child actor very a long, long time ago. I, I always tell people that if I live long enough, I'll be the longest living member of the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, <laughs> so I, I joined when I was four. But uh, and so I've always I've always had this incredibly passionate connection with the theater, with our artistic life and have always tried to connect it to something larger than that. And it, I, I think that this moment is helping people do it and in every every possible way it's this crazy combination of a global pandemic and an opening of american minds around uh race and class mm-hmm. and the, i think the movement for black lives has has helped us all think about how we can be better Absolutely. i'm also uh, very in love with american theater and i've i'm on the board of a theater in in san francisco and we're worried we're worried about what the future of theater will be, particularly and you know, it, un, until there's a vaccine and whatever, people can get back into right. a theater together. How are you seeing organizations adapting? I mean, we're all in just chaos mode right now, but how are you seeing that? How are you helping them? How are you dealing with your, particularly with your theater, but other arts performance grantees who are dealing Absolutely. with asking these terrible questions? Great question. I I think a lot, Eric, about beyond when we have a vaccine and sort of we learn anecdotally that it's safe to return to what we used to consider normal life. um, I think that the arts is going to suffer from a longer lag of beyond being told that it's okay. There's a public confidence level that I think is going to take longer than medicine or science will. So I think we have a rough couple of years ahead of us, if I'm being honest. I think what I've seen that is, you know, a couple of indicators that I think are really exciting. I'm seeing more and more an understanding about community interdependence, where I think that because we live in a world that sort of um, has a narrative of scarcity, often theaters have just competed, competed for what they consider limited dollars, competed for what they consider limited high quality content or actors or directors or back-end staff and technical expertise. And so more and more what I'm seeing is that folks are coming together to understand we all need to collectively fundraise. We all need to support each other. So that's been really gratifying on the philanthropic side to be receiving more aggregated collective requests for support as opposed to a divide and conquer, save those that you can. So that's been a really bright spot. I think as it relates to getting back to the practice of theater and sort of galleries and museums, some of the most promising adaptation that I've seen is to recognize most of us as audience members have wanted a peek into what it takes to get to the final piece. 
And so some of the most creative theaters, I think, have taken even the rehearsal processes that start out with a simple, everyone sitting around a table and doing a reading of their individual parts, having intricate and deep discussions about an analysis of what we think a character is thinking or why we are in a certain place, and that those become opportunities that even through social distancing that many audience members are likely willing to pay some fee to participate, to experience, to listen to, to ask questions with. It's, you know, we, it's part of an extension of what we've seen in the past where I think high-end donors might have been invited to a dress rehearsal or the development uh, or consistency of post-performance talkbacks where directors and producers and actors are in fact in dialogue and conversation with the audience. And so it's about understanding the value in every piece of what I, you know, what some in business might consider the supply chain or the operation chain, and then thinking about how to monetize those in a virtual way. You know, I've also just been very glad when I think about groups like the National Performance Network that recognize they had the capital and that while their contracts with artists for traveling performances stated that the perform they couldn't get fully paid until the perform the public performance happened, they said, stop, we're not going to enforce this. We're just going to pay you. Do your work and find a way to share it publicly uh, for free, but we're still going to pay you to produce and present the work. And so those are three things that I'm seeing that I think as we go through the next couple of years will continue to be important. And I always say, I'm never the smartest guy in the room, so I know that there are going to be other millions of brilliant ideas that come up. We'll certainly find ways to highlight and encourage uh, folks to consider. Well, I certainly think that we're changing the definition of what theater is. Having mm -hmm. sat in our living rooms and watched theater on the screen in a way that we right. hadn't before or engaging right. with a company in a way that we hadn't before, I, I, I think everyone wants to to feel like they belong to something and that theater companies that make their audiences give them that sense of belonging, as, as you say, giving them a glimpse into the production process or into the creative process or in one way or another feeling a connection with these artists makes, I don't know, that, that's why we go anyway, right? We want to be in the room with these people and just breathe exactly. their oxygen or their CO2. Exactly. Uh, there, there's another thing that's happening right now in the theater, in the theater community in particular, that I think is really interesting. It's very exciting, and it's scaring the pants off of a, a lot of folks as well. I, I I know that you've seen this this note that has gone around called "We See You, White American Theater," and this was mm -hmm. a thirty-one page manifesto uh, with mm -hmm. a, a a series of demands for how white American theater must change. And going reading through that, it's like, wow, this is a provocative, dynamic, exciting, scary document. Uh, can you can you talk just a little bit about your response to it? I as I, I said to you before we got on the air, I, I haven't actually had this conversation with anybody yet, and yeah, I'm so yeah. interested in in getting your perspective on it. No, I'm so glad that you brought it up. I'll start with thrilled, thrilled again to see the level of coalition thoughtfulness and shared thinking. You know, one of the things that really stuck out to me in the presentation of the We See You is the articulation that there's no one set of leadership, that this is, you know, multiple individuals across the country from, you know, high level Broadway theater all the way to community theater in, you know, towns that we may not know of. And I think that that kind of decentralized organizing in every sector is the approach that we should be taking. 
So a huge kudos to this collective that also recognizes that some people are uh, more at risk for speaking out in the way that, um, and I'll use this term and I hope it's not too provocative, but in the way that some folks talk about white supremacy and the way that it exists in our world can be very retaliatory. For those of us that articulate a concern about the way in which marginalization may be happening, or some collective or group of individuals are being taken advantage of, and there are extractive processes that are being deployed, that, that it can become very dangerous for folks to speak up, no matter what race or experience level you come from. So I'm excited, first and foremost, that that collective work and that collective care is happening. Second, this is reminiscent to me of, you know, Black Lives Matter started many, many years ago, founded by three women of color across the country coming collectively. That led to the movement for Black Lives, where folks realized that not everyone agrees on the exact type of decentralized leadership, but that it might be important for us to come to some consensus around what is the public vision? What is the, what is the request for change? And so it was clear that they had worked collectively to pull together a, a set of discrete and specific requests um, that acknowledged historical disinvestment, acknowledged historical marginalization, is, uh, acknowledged the way in which, whether we like it or not, whether it's intentional or not, I think is less the case, but that a certain set of narratives are looked at. It's part of my critique, for example, of the film world that I think sometimes happens in theater as well is that narratives that come from communities of color or the ones that get produced are what I might call trauma porn. They're often about the plight of the community of color or the plight of the low-income community and, you know, how this middle class or upper class or caring person from the outside world came and saved the, lo the low-income folks, um, as opposed to really being able to allow for stories of opportunity, opportunity, or stories of success and joy, and the way that they coexist with the challenges that all of our communities face. So um, ultimately, though, and it comes back to one of the sort of primary three outcomes at the Certina Foundation, you know, we talk about increased democratic participation, we talk about increased accountability, and I think that this mechanism is about increasing accountability to broad communities and increase wealth building opportunities for those people that have been marginalized. And ultimately, the narratives and stories that get told become a sort of reinforcing cycle of whose story and perspective is valued, who gets to own copyright, who gets to say what, what nuance should exist. So I'm really thrilled that at least there's a beginning of a conversation I'll say, you know, there are some folks I'm talking to that are prepared to write articles about defund the cultural institution writ large in the same way that people are calling for defunding of the police and saying that we need to fundamentally find a new order for who gets to be the cultural archive of our society and of our time. So I think these questions are important ones, and I'm now eager to sort of see how people come to the table. You know, one of the other critiques that has come up is that since the sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, and I joke that I reorder them diversity, inclusion, and equity because the acronym becomes DIE um, <laughs> instead of DEI. Uh, 
It just ends up talking circles around things. And that major institutions that have existed for a while that play a critical role in our, in our communities have been funded as white leadership to continue to try and diversify their programs, diversify their staff, diversify their audiences. And that is an approach, but we haven't seen great advancements that are uh, worthy of the sizable investments that have been made from philanthropy and from private individuals. And so I think the call to action here is also not just to the theater world, but to the philanthropic world that supports it and to its audiences to consider where those dollars go and how do we deeply invest in these communities having the full autonomy and self-determination to tell their stories and to build their own cultural archives, institutions, and community anchors in the way that traditional white Western, you know, Western European institutions have had the opportunity to historically. I think that's how I'm sort of processing it and thinking about the, the manifesto, as you said. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And this is interesting because, yes, it's true, white American theater is will feel challenged by this document. And I encourage I encourage white American theater not to, the, to, to actually yeah. understand what's behind it, which to my mind is that we need to create um, – I'm supposed to be asking you these questions, but I'm just trying this idea out on you because you're in the middle of it and I respect what you had to say. But the idea is that we create mental models – by the representations that we present in our culture. Yes. People see yes. somebody who is striving to have a better life and they have a, a response to that. They see somebody yeah. who is being locked up and they have a response to that. And it reinforces our mental models, which then gets expressed in our policies and our practices. Absolutely. And those things have to change in order to live in a just society because we will actually change the chemistry of our brains by the images mm -hmm. that we see and the experiences that we feel. And that chemistry mm -hmm. will lead to a more just policies and practices. And this document says, okay, folks, if we can't get to that through asking nice, we are going mm -hmm. to get to that by kind of requiring that the artistic forces that will produce those better mental models are taken into account at the beginning, not at the end. That That's why you have to have 50% of the artistic team are black, indigenous, or people of color. That's why you have to mess with the trade unions, which have focused power among a very, very specific group of people. That That's how you're exactly. going to get there. Because uh, if you're right. not going to do it on your own, you're going to have to be dragged into it. And I, right. I mean, again, highly controversial. I get it. I think I get it. And I understand yeah. where this all takes us, which is that our brains are messed up. Yes. And, and so this is the opportunity, Eric. I think you've highlighted something really critical. You know, traditional white American theater can see this as a threat to their existence, or they can see it as an invitation to adapt and grow into a new model. Those that want to take this as a threat, I think it might be to their own detriment in the long term. Sure, you're going to continue to have donors that are going to support you. And at some point, audiences will diminish because audience needs and desires are changing over time. Um, it's just the nature of the work that we do. And so I think there's such an opportunity here for, those, for these traditional theaters to just take a step back and say, okay, it's one of the things I say a lot about mayors and city council members when, when they respond to civil unrest. You can either chastise and criticize people because the way that they're communicating a message isn't to your liking, or you can say, you know what? My way of communicating is not the standard, 
People communicate and have tried to do things in different ways. Why don't I just figure out how do I join these people to understand what they're asking me to do and how I can work in partnership to lead to the change that people see and believe is necessary because at the end we all benefit. This change is opportunity to adapt really is to the potential growth and scaling and increased impact of the theater world. And my hope is that, you know, those traditional white theater beacons will take that opportunity. Will take will accept the invitation and really lean in to looking at themselves and accepting the critique and opportunity to grow and build something new. Well, this has been such a great conversation. For one thing, I was feeling a little down this morning, and now I'm really excited after talking to you. <laughs> so, you know, just purely as therapy, it's it's been helpful. But, I hear but the, you. These conversations are essential and can really help <laughs> us all process how we're the information we're receiving. I'm really grateful that you reached out and, and invited me to join you today. Well, thank you so much for what you're doing, and thanks for talking to us. Javier Torres Campos. Program Director at the Thriving Cultures Program at the Cerna Foundation. Thank you again. Have a great day. Thanks so much. You too. And we're back. You did it again, Eric. You did it again. Can we just start? Uh, you got there at the end. I put it in my notes after about listening to this, maybe for about five or seven minutes. How can you help but not be inspired and be filled with hope when you listen to the kind of work and the kind of thinking that's going behind it? Talk to me about the Thriving Cultures program from the Serdna Foundation and Javier's work. It's so exciting to hear about it and hear I was thinking about it. Well, this is interesting because you would tend to think of a kind of a cultures program as a performing arts program. Javier was on the board of the Grantmakers in the Arts Affinity Group, an organization that that brings together uh, grant makers in the arts. Hello. And and so you think, okay, this is kind of a performing arts thing, but you can see the work that he's doing. He is looking, he is drawing from all sorts of, I would say, creative disciplines in looking at how do we build a better society, including design. Uh, how wow. do we, and some of it is architecture. It's just a much more expansive view of, of cultural expression than I think a lot of us, myself included, tend to consider when we think of either about philanthropy or about kind of what is the role of the arts in our society. And so that's why what he's doing is is a little different from, from many other arts funders, and I think we can all learn a lot from it. But I mean, he's looking at what is the built environment, how does that affect how we interact as people, how we express ourselves, what does it say about sociology, what does it say about uh, justice and equity, it's really, really interesting stuff. It just makes I love talking to people who uh, make my head explode. Uh, there's the thoroughness, the thoroughness of the work and the thinking. I was wondering, and again, I need a, I need communications professionals. I need some help here. How do we? What's the word we use to describe these interviews? Each being so outstanding in their own right. But I, I was listening to this discussion, thinking, is this possibly one of the most content rich interviews we've had to date? I love that exchange you had about Grantmakers for the Arts, which is a new organization for me, certainly not for anybody who's in that part of philanthropy. But he he describes this process uh, that started with Claudine Brown, and he mentions all of the other people that were part of that, Lori and Justin and Maureen and Janet, going through this process of thinking about um, how to work with anti-racism in their, in their work and their grant making. And I'm curious to get your reflections on that. And by the way, 
here we are in the arts. I think this is your first love. I I feel it in the interview. I'm oh, like, yeah. this is this is where Eric is like just in his fullness as 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 a person <laughs> thinking about this stuff. But uh, but how does that process unfold either in the arts part of philanthropy or just writ large? We've been wrestling a lot on this podcast, I think, with this notion of anti-racism and how you move that forward in in a considered way. And it really feels like um, Javier is, is is a real leader in that and. Has also, as I loved how he said it, but he's also standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, do you have reflections on that whole process? Well, clearly, and I kind of, I feel a little bad because I did a little too much talking uh, in my conversation with Javier. But as I also, as I also said to him, he's helping me process. And he was the first person I spoke with about we the We See You White American Theater document that came out. I think it was a couple of months ago, which. I just encourage everybody to go in and, and to read it. We'll put a link on the website. But what this is, is an expression of of how many people feel like they have been excluded from the opportunity to present their authentic stories and to participate fully in American culture. And we've had that. You and I have had this conversation. I've had this conversation with other folks on the show, which and and we kind of building from the things we learned from Traby and Shorters, building from the things we learned from John Powell, building from the mm-hmm. things we learned from Ben McBride, um, and and um, Saru J. Raman, and um, and Chanel Matthews. I mean, a long list of people of color who are expressing the opportunity and the the need to fully participate in American culture. We're not doing that. And this is another way to express that, which is that we need to be able to tell legitimate, authentic stories, which will help all of us fully participate in society and also begin to shift the mental models that white, black and brown people in this country have about what's good and what's bad, what's true and what's false, and which and those those old tropes have contributed to this incredible polarization that we have in America right now, in which people see two different realities. And by redressing that, by changing this narrative about what it means to be here and what right and wrong is and all this other stuff, we, we have the opportunity to shift our society. And that's what well, that's what I see in how and and funders have this incredible opportunity to do that as well to fund organizations that are telling those stories because we get our cues you and me and everybody else get our cues from the things we see on television in the movies in listen to in music stories that we read newspaper you know all that stuff so we we have the opportunity to shift the culture oh I'm exhausted. Well, but this is what this is why we need the Javier's and all the folks he's talking about at the center of our thinking there, because this is where the thoroughness comes forward, isn't it? I mean, it's funny you mentioned as an aside being at the Hewlett Foundation and thinking, you know, in the hallways, the people working on climate going by the people working in the arts and just thinking, oh, man, I'm doing climate. You're just doing the arts. And um, and now you're pulling forward this. It's kind of a a joke. I mean, no, never, never said that. <laughs> you know, nobody ever said nobody that. Nobody ever but said I can... that at the Hewlett Foundation. But I think this understanding is that the arts are kind of a light thing, that they're a nice to have. But the arts shape our culture. They shape they our culture. And it's the culture that led to this thing that says that climate change is a hoax. That's, these yes. things all go together. And that's the point. Totally. 
That's right. That's the point. And and I think um, yeah, the solution that culture there, sorry. sorry, say again. What? You got me all wound up. I'm sorry. I'm well, but this is now. this is what's so important because I, you know, I, I was going to say I, I couldn't imagine walking into a, a major climate philanthropist saying, "Hey, I want to I want to work on culture." Yet here we are, decades into that issue, and we know that that's kind of at the center of what we need to do. Um, but he talks about you know these touchstones that they're driving towards: increased democratic participation, increased accountability, increased wealth building. Don't you feel like in a way that those could be three touchstones almost for any kind of philanthropic strategy? Like that, that if that's not the core of what you're trying to do, um, I don't know. I just, I, the, the way that this conversation about arts, culture, society, how culture and policy interrelate and mirror each other, that at the heart of it, if we can drive towards these things around democratic participation, accountability, and gen- generating wealth that can be shared more broadly, is that at the heart of it? Is that basically what we're trying to do with all this work? I, I like that way of thinking, Kirk, because what that does is it focuses on it focuses on something different than the means to the end. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I fund climate or I fund the arts, frankly, because I, I, I want to achieve through a more just society through the arts. Uh, it, what it leaves out are all of the things that how all these pieces fit together. And I think that that's what sometimes happens is that you end up funding in your lane and you don't you miss something important and it is true that if you care about climate understanding how the culture and the way the narratives and the way we communicate and how we understand reality uh, all those things are affected by by culture as well you could you could absolutely justify a whole set of grants in narrative shift around you know through through the arts as part of your climate strategy you totally could do that and it would be fascinating, interesting. You may say, oh, I'm not an expert in the arts, but that's okay. You know, we're all smart people. You can figure this out. So I, I do think that it, rather that, so if you have an, a social justice or a social equity, a racial equity strategy, then there are so many opportunities to support that strategy through your grant making. And that includes culture. It includes research, of course. It includes a wide variety of things, but uh, we we kind of fund we have a tendency to create our programs based on the thing you do rather than the outcome you're hoping to achieve. I mean, it's, well, it's, it's funny just how it is. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I, I say we just keep doing what we're doing, you know, finding good people, talking to them. That's mostly you. I mostly get to listen. I'm so glad by the way, I get to listen and learn to all these conversations, but there's a, there's a, there's a little narrative arc showing up as we go through these conversations and what an interesting contribution to that from Javier here. And I have to say, again, I was, I was making that note to myself at the very beginning of the conversation, but you guys came back to it towards the end. What a hopeful voice, what a hoped filled voice. And I have to say, you know, even amidst all of the challenges and just the real suffering we're seeing, and it's being mirrored back to us in so many ways, in so many places, knowing that there are people like this that are doing such hard work and putting these pieces together. Again, our heads are exploding just thinking about it for 20 minutes here. Um, What a hopeful reflection in terms of the direction of all this work. It was just, I'm so glad you did this interview, Eric. It was really, really awesome to hear. Well, I I really enjoyed it. I do believe that we have at our, we have the potential for a great awakening. I believe that. And I, and Thanks to Javier helping us think about how that awakening that awakening is achieved. Um, you know, we're getting a little closer to it. It's there's going to be a lot of work. It's not going to be easy, but I think that it's possible. 
Javier Torres Campos, Program Director of the Thriving Cultures Program from the Surgeon Foundation. Thank you for your work. Thank you for being with us here on Let's Hear It. And Eric, thank you so much for this interview. It was awesome to hear. All right. See you next time. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it.